Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, let's the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, it is a beautiful day, it's a lovely day, because... While we are not in attendance, it is the Crone Jubilee. Or have you been following the Crone Jubilee on on Twitter? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> this is the this is the birthday extravaganza okay. for friend of the show Emily L. Stevens, oh, and it is her birthday. That's very exciting. Happy birthday, Emily! I'm sorry I didn't know it was your birthday. <laughs> Yes. And so they're celebrating with by having friends in from out of town and just like have, having the crone jubilee, as as Emily has dubbed it. And I feel like that, like, that's just Emily living her her best life and all of us aspiring to that as well. Mm-hmm. So happy birthday to Emily and uh, very exciting. This was the peak of my news. There was other TV news this week. But this is most what I've, what I've most been enjoying following on, on Twitter. Um, Atlanta got renewed for season four. Season three is going to air at some point. Yeah. Do we know when season three is going to air? I don't know. Probably not this year, but I, I legitimately don't know. Um, I didn't look yeah. um, because I just went, wait, is it season three? I don't know. But their production schedule is so weird that and their cast is now so in demand. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are worse problems to have um, than not being sure when the new season is going to come out before the next new season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, you know, there, there's that. And then there was the the announcement of uh, the next season of American Crime Story. They It seems like they've really permanently shelved that uh, Hurricane Katrina yeah. season. And instead, they're going to do the Bill Clinton uh, sex scandal. And what was interesting to me about this was not that choice, which I think is fine, uh, but the fact that Monica Lewinsky is going to be a producer on it, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very good. Like, I mean, if they're going to tell the story, she should be involved. Um, and so I'm very glad that she's going to be involved. And um, it's also like I'm deeply amused because I feel like they've been sort of scooped to a certain degree because of the um, uh, documentary that we discussed earlier this year or late last year. I think it was earlier this year. Um, and so it's like, but no, you. I've, I've watched this. I have not watched it with Sarah Paulson um playing linda Tripp, though she should be playing bill clinton as uh someone i follow <laughs> on twitter pointed out because that's that's who sarah paulson should be playing as bill clinton um because that would be amazing i yeah, i mean <laughs> I, I would say would watch i mean i'm going to probably watch it no matter what but like oh that would be great yeah <laughs> though this does remind me did you see the um all the real good cast photos for mrs america that of the fx series uh that's got like um everyone and their brother in oh i did see it because of the i saw the the uh the the chisholm yes picture i was just like yes it was oduba yes 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 so it's all of that group uh dealing with the passage of the era or the lack of passage of the era um like yeah. rose burns playing gloria steinem and just looks pure gloria steinem it's real good um, so no, the pictures for that, uh, came out as a result of FX's day at TCA's and it's just like, oh, just inject that into my eyes right now, please. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> FX making sure they have the, they're at least they're heading into battle with HBO, uh, with their full armor and, uh, you know, a nice, uh, 
extra like plus two sword or something. Yes, for the for the limited series slash miniseries TV movie categories uh, next award season. Um, but yeah, so there there's other news out of TCAs, but the highlights for us were, were those ones. We've got a, a comparatively long week in TV just because there are a bunch of finales and premieres, and so we wanted to talk about them, and they'll probably take a while. So we're gonna cap our top of show discussion here and listen to some music and come back with our week in TV. At the end of the show, we're inviting on a friend of the show, uh, Daze Johnston, to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is more you know pretty recently put up on Netflix. My first time watching it, Daze's first time, you're like bajillionth time. Yes, Noel? Yeah, I've watched it at least probably four or five, maybe six times. I honestly don't know. It's not double digits. <laughs> it was an interesting and not contentious just because people are nicer than me uh, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a it was a good time. So that's coming at the end of the show. Um, but until then, let's take a break, listen to some music, and come back with our week in TV. We'll be right back after this. This week in TV, we're going to talk about a bit about the season four premiere of Patriot Act uh, with Hassan Minaj, and then I'll talk a bit about the premiere of a Black Lady Sketch Show. Oh, sorry, the Patriot Act premiere is the dark side of the video game industry. A Black Lady Sketch Show has premiered. Angela Bassett is the baddest bitch, which... Yes. yes. (laughs) Objectively, it has been stated. Then we'll talk about the Grotish season finale, or or summer finale, whatever, finale. Dreams and Nightmares. Then we'll have a bit about the Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. finale, The Sign in New Life. And then Noel's going to talk a bit about some game shows and reality competitions that are on Netflix, including Blown Away Season 1, Awake the Million Dollar Game, and Sugar Rush Seasons 1 and 2. And then we'll round things out with some Queen Sugar conversation all the borders. So first up is Patriot Act, and this is an episode all about all the terrible things involved in the video game industry and why we need unions, unions for the win. As a very proud and uh, fervent and uh, energetic union member, I'm all for unions. And when that's what the the premiere kind of ends on, when like we get to that that point, I was like, yay. Because a lot of this stuff was stuff I already knew and had been following, so it wasn't very revelatory for me. Um, And I don't always love Minaj's, uh, like, delivery, but... Uh, I, there were some fun gags, and the I think the thread, where the thread was leading, I thought worked pretty well. Yeah, um, I really like this um, episode as well. Like you said, there's nothing particularly revelatory in this discussion, especially if, like me, or even apparently you, um, you're sort of aware of what's going on in the video game industry. Um, like, a lot of this, like, came out 
Um, in particular, like uh, with the launch of Red Dead Redemption 2 and the working conditions therein about that, but also just generally, especially because of Kotaku, who they talked to one of their main reporters um, for this segment, um, who Kotaku's done. I love you too. Um, Kotaku's done a lot of, um, uh, whatchamacallit, investigative reporting about crunch time about labor conditions within various video game and uh, publishing uh, studios um, from telltale who also made a lot of news when they up and fired pretty much everyone immediately um, and then made them sign all their NDAs and was just like, don't talk to anyone about the fact that we fired you without any severance. And also here's Cobra and Cobra is terrible. So it doesn't count. Um, and all this sort of stuff. So I think that, but it's still a good discussion about what we should be doing for the video game industry employees of labor unions, um, which is part of a larger trend that we're seeing more and more of about unionization. Um, and I think that this is a really good sort of type of episode to explore that because like he points, like they point out, Video games are deeply, deeply, deeply labor-intensive. And so... But they're also deeply expensive. Uh, They have really artificial benchmarks and release dates. And the industry is deeply, deeply screwed up. And so the degree to which that gets passed down through and to the labor force... um, This episode only scratches the surface. So the ending of him playing um, Fortnite, I think... um, It's Fortnite or Overwatch. I'm pretty sure it's Fortnite... It's Fortnite, yeah. yeah. Um, and whether or not this is actually happening, um, and uh, unless they're just simulating, it's hard to tell. Um, but it's still really um, fun. It's not hard to tell. They're definitely simulating it. But it's still funny, and yeah. that or worse would happen. Yes, no. Um, so it was just like, I, I, I really wanted this to be real. But um, I think it's still really good, and it's sort of along the lines of what they do with their internet episode of like making their internet, uh, internet access episode available via disc. Um, Mm -hmm. so that people can get it if they don't have decent internet connection to stream it, um, is a good way to sort of like, I just went, I wish I played Fortnite so I could do this and really get banned and annoyed by people. But I'm terrible at these games. <laughs> but I, I still think that that's a good way to like kind of approach it. And it's a very much a call to arms sort of thing that Last Week Tonight also does. Um, so I think it's, I, it's a good sort of comeback episode for the show. Um, it's not as in-depth as some of their other stuff is because there's just so much to talk about in with this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Also... Clearly my level, my game and my level was GoldenEye, The Stacks, Golden Gun, and I Get to Be Odd Job. That was the only way I had a shot of not instantly dying. They like I'm so bad at, go- at, at, at like any of these FPSs that my brothers would let me be Odd Job because that was the only way that there was a shot. Mm-hmm. And there were like one or two levels where I actually had learned the the layout and so if 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 there was golden gun i knew where the golden gun would drop and so i could get it pretty quickly and then i just had to hit them which was not a given <laughs> so that's why it was fair cuz they might kill me 
even his odd job, before I got one accurate sh- shot of somebody with a golden gun. Um, listeners, if you can't tell, yes, there was an N64 in my household growing up, um, and they still didn't master any of the games. But they were fun. You know, I just would watch Smash. Like, you know, you know you've done some watching of Smash, Noel, and uh, I, I just, I couldn't play Super Smash because it just, I would just get killed so much. It just wasn't interesting for anyone. So, uh, goodness knows, I enjoyed the references that were being dropped. It's very much for me and my generation yes. as well, our generation. So, that was fun. When he had the little shot, no, no odd job, I was like, come <laughs> on. That's the only shot. It's the only way I can. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so that was a fun little moment for Patriot Act. Uh, there are a bunch of fun little moments in Black Lady Sketch Show, which had its premiere. Angela Bassett is the baddest bitch, which she is. Uh, I thought this was a solid but not great, not outstanding um, first episode for the show. Uh, I really enjoy everyone involved in it, all of the writers and um, the performers that I'm familiar with, which is most of them. I thought I'd do a good job, and th- there's a energy and a, a confidence and enthusiasm to the performing and the writing too, that I really enjoy in this. And, um, I've seen some people compare it to key and peel in the costuming and like, like the hair and makeup and like that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that there are connections there aside from obviously that being two different sketch shows featuring, you know, people of color in the leads, but and it is the center of the, the, the writing and the creative elements to the show. Um, but yeah, I thought it was solid and I'm really looking forward to following this show through its full season. I mean, I, I would watch pretty much any show that Robin TV thought was worth putting out there. Um, but you put this whole group of people all together and I just like, I'm very excited for the season. So the first episode, um, even the, that's the titular sketch I thought was, had like a good premise, but didn't quite nail. Like it wasn't, uh, like, I didn't feel like it was uh, qu- quite done baking. It was most of the way there, but I think it could have been a little bit better. I don't know how. <laughs> um, but it was still really fun. And I just am looking forward to the energy that I anticipate from, you know, your Laverne Cox, your Angela Bassett, your different people who are brought in, you know, to, to be guest stars on this, as well as the the creative team, because uh, they're just all really funny. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Is this one that you're going to plan to check out, or are you not interested in Sketch right no, now? No, no, this was definitely something we were going to check out, and my person and I actually almost watched it, um, but then we opted to watch something else. Um, I forget what. Um, but we opted to watch something else, but this is something we'll circle back to. And listeners, uh, Black Lady Sketch Show is on HBO. We should, uh, note. Oh, yes. Um, Thank yeah, you. no problem. Um, so no, this is something that my partner and I are definitely going to circle around to. We just, I kept forgetting about it. Um, yeah. and part because I was also doing a lot of like make you watch a thon watching this week. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, that's coming in a few weeks, yes. listeners. But yeah, Robin Thede from a bunch of different things. Uh, Ashley Nicole Black from Full Friend with Sam B. Amber Ruffin from Late Show with uh, Seth Meyers. Um, a bunch of really talented writers. So um, yeah, looking forward to that. We had our Grownish finale, Dreams and Nightmares. And uh, it was fine. I'm kind of just glad to be out of the season at this point and exhausted by the return of the love triangle and a reviving of, of Aaron as OTP. And um, apparently, like, the the unearned 
uh, closure that they apparent that we apparently saw in the previous episode with Anna and and Aaron, which listeners was not there. Um, so I thought that part of it was uh, irritating, um, and I thought that some of the drama was earned and some of it wasn't. But um, I just I feel like this season has been has had some really interesting stuff, but has also just been very fractured for lack of a better word like why this whole plot with with jazz and like why with the twins if they're if like everything's gonna be fine for next season which is what it sounds like next episode is gonna pick up in the fall and so the twins will just be back to track together like i'm i'm don't quite understand some of the creative choices in the writing this season right i think fractured is a really good adjective for this season um because there's a lack of really solid consistency in terms of what are we supposed to care about what are do the what does the show care about i think is also like kind of the larger question that it doesn't have an answer to doesn't want to do the stories about athletic scholarship and the loss thereof doesn't want to talk about Zoe having to make it on her own and then getting a dream job that involves a private jet to go fly off to London. And it's like, but, but you just did a thing about her losing all her, but now she's got the thing. And it's just like, can we commit to something? Can we do, can we have a civilization? Uh, (laughs) And the answer apparently is no. And it's it's just really frustrating. It's very scattershot. Um, even down to uh, Nomi like getting a phone call about allegations regarding the professor and then just kind of going, I'm not dealing with that. And it's like, I can understand not wanting to deal with that. But also it's like, this is something that is maybe going to come back in next season. And to which I go, but you didn't do a great job with this in season in this season. Why are we going back to it now? Um, it's just, it's a very frustrating show that I think is not sure what it wants to be about anymore. And it's lost that sort of perspective. Um, and that's really frustrating, um, especially on a character level, but also just on a, what are we trying to say sometimes and how are we saying it? And I don't know that there's a really strong guiding hand or philosophy behind the show right now. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually was rather interested and excited for the Nomi thing Mm -hmm. because I'm hoping that that's going to bring with it more interesting and more more introspection from that character and more interesting themes and threads. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it's very possible that they won't, (laughs) that it will be an uninteresting, you know, the continuation of a thread that we weren't particularly fond of. Um, But if if there someone's bringing complaints, so clearly there are other women and that I think could lead to it could put Nomi in interesting positions and lead to some interesting conversations. It may not, but it, but there's the potential there for something, which is at least more than they've given her in a while, and certainly more than they've given Vivek. Poor Vivek. <laughs> poor, poor Vivek. Um, at least he got to keep that jacket. Yes. I was waiting for, like, the reveal that he had, like, paid off Dion Cole to do that, but... Yeah. Alas. Yeah, so was I, but alas. Um, let me see. I thought the show looked good. I would have, you know, like, why did we do this whole mini arc of her having no money and of her, like, not getting into fashion, the school and all that different stuff? Like, 
I, I hope that they take the writers take the off season to kind of crystallize what they want to do next season. Yes. Instead of doing like these little mini threads that don't go anywhere, um, we still remember the Adderall thing, guys. Uh, so, so hopefully next season will bring more uh, cohesion. Yeah, no, I'm super looking forward to seeing Zoe and her independent study major. And um, what you couldn't cla- hear that, listeners. I big ol' <laughs> eye roll. Um, and how that gets to play out across season three, because I'm sure she's deeply com- she's going to be super committed to that um, major now that she's had this experience. Yeah, very, very, very committed. She's very so, such a serious student now. Anyways, um, on that sarcastic note, what do we think of Agents of Shield and their finale, the two part finale, The Sign and New Life? Did you like? Where they fell with um, Sarge? I did. I like the. I sort of did end up liking what they decided to do with Sarge. Of like, all right, we're not going to redeem Sarge, and Sarge is not going to become Coulson. In fact, he's just a big scary alien, and we're going to lean in on that. And I just went, good. I'm glad we're doing this. Um, and even if like. I think ultimately, like a lot of the machinations of Izel, of the Shrike, of Sarge, um, true form and all that kind of stuff never really clicked into place for me about what I needed to care about. And it's obviously bad, but like the degree to which it was just like, I don't understand anything that's happening right now. But it's fun, it's silly, and everyone's good in it. And we also get little things like... Deke saying they identify as my grandparents, uh, which is <laughs> which is which great. Is probably one of the best lines of the year. Um, but it's those little things just kind of keep me going, basically. And so, even if the big mythos stuff doesn't totally sometimes click into place for me, um, I appreciate the dedication to it. I appreciate the fact that they just keep bringing these monoliths back, um, and. All this sort of stuff, even if it doesn't always make sense to me and sometimes feels a little scattered. But I generally think that for me, just having Sarge not become a member of the team covered everything that I kind of wanted out of this half of a season, basically, since this is very much like the halfway point of a larger story that they wanted to tell. Um, So how did you feel about like the Sarge resolution and all the scary bat stuff i got so scared for you i thought they were gonna kill yo-yo and i was gonna get very pissed off i was just like you almost almost killed may i knew you weren't gonna kill her but you almost killed may don't almost kill yo-yo too (laughs) yeah i'm i'm actually not worried about yo-yo um i was a little worried about may but i was like i don't think the show works without her um and I was a little worried about me, but I wasn't worried about Yo-Yo because I think of the various things that S.H.I.E.L.D. has done well, I think that one of the biggest is representation. And I think they know that they should not and have chosen with their priorities, not that they will not kill off one of the best disability representations on TV and one of the very, very few in a superhero show where you have a character who has a disability, in this case, no arms, and who is still not defined by that, but is a productive member of the team. It has interesting things to to contribute. Outside of, by the way, let's not forget the Latinx or Latinx representation of that character as well. Like, 
I, one of the things I appreciate <laughs> that the person they killed off this season was a white guy. <laughs> and we didn't want that character to die either because we like that character a lot. Um, but And they only do bad things to the straight couple. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So after Claws and some other ones, you know, I really appreciate that. Um, so so I wasn't actually worried about Yo-Yo at all. Um, I was like, I wonder how they're going to get out of this was my like take yeah. while watching it. Yeah. And I feel like that's the appropriate – and that's the tone that they have earned and that they have developed over these seasons with this show is that you feel like you're in pretty safe hands. So you can just kind of relax and, and watch and it's a more invigorating experience than a stressful experience, at least for me, which is fun. Yeah. Unless you're a Fitzsimmons shipper, yes, then, then- – you just live in a constant state of anxiety. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. But overall, I will say that I was I was rolling my eyes at the May stuff. I needed that. I needed her to have been stabbed differently, so it was like not as yes. fatal looking. Yes. Um, and more the fact that she was yes. being thrown through a portal to to bleed out and die was the issue. And so when she's like, bad, I mean, and also obviously they haven't had bodies for long. <laughs> Maybe they're not good at bodies <laughs> in that other dimension. Yeah. Um, but like when she's battling like Sarge and Azel and like like full power. Quake couldn't do anything to him, but May can't, like, it didn't make any sense, and I was rolling my eyes. But, um, they wanted to give her a badass moment, and fair enough. Uh, I think the part of this that I enjoyed the most, aside from the, the, I thought the, the effect with Sarge was really cool. Um, yes, and I was glad that they spent on that. Um, but the part that I enjoyed the most was actually the Deke stuff, and I'm not always big on Deke, but I loved the way that they kind of earned what his character development has been and like like i love the shout out to the lemons i loved all the stuff like i totally buy him being like well screw it I'm, i will test the experimental thing like i 100 percent believe that from that character um and then like dropping it and panicking and then running away in the middle of the woods um i love the fact that he had a team secretly the whole time <laughs> and just nobody was paying attention because he kept getting distracted by the end of the world um yeah there was a lot of really fun stuff with deke and that i that I certainly appreciated. I was worried that Simmons had been chronomiconed a bit based on her hair and the performance um, at the end. But so I don't think we're supposed to think that has happened, which I guess is good. Um, Are you excited for what's coming? I mean, I'm very excited about their um, little time travel jaunt to the thirties. Um, I appreciate all the rumor mongering about Haley Atwell showing up. Oh, um, God, that had that had better happen. Happen. Uh, since they've re- they've already finished filming the last season, so it's in the can pretty much. In terms, they just probably have to do a bunch of post production stuff. Um, so it's already filmed. Um, so they just have to like finish it. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, I'm interested in the tension of the life model decoy Coulson, mm-hmm. um, and how Coulson's going to respond to that and how May's going to respond to that. Uh, since we already know how Daisy's responding to it of like, no, give me back my father figure right now. Um, I love that Simmons is like, and frankly, I just, I wanted a hug, <laughs> which like, <yeah. laughs> she's been through enough. Let her have her fake hug. That's cool. Yeah, so no, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to Clark Gregg being Coulson again, as opposed to Sarge, um, since, I mean, I love Coulson a lot. 
Um, and I love Clark Gregg in this performance. So I'm excited to see that. But I also just hope they stay in the 30s in some capacity because I, I just want them in period costume. And my heart may not be able to take all these people in period costumes because um, yeah. it's going to be real good. Yeah. They're all so pretty and the costumes are just going to be so pretty. So pretty. <laughs> yes. Um, how do you feel about the degree of self-awareness of you're going to have to change the very nature of yourselves and Fitzsimmons going, you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that again. Okay. And like the show's dedication to keeping these two people separated across space and time over and over again, even to the point where this time around um, Simmons cannot even know when or where Fitz is for this whole thing to work. Mm-hmm. I am super down with it. I appreciated the self-awareness of it. and but, but, but even more than that, I appreciated the reaction that they both have of like, yep, sounds yes. about right. We, you know, like this sucks, but also we already know how we feel about this. We've already made this choice and we are the kind of people that will always choose the, the greater good over our personal happiness. Um, and so, you know, we also need a reason to not have the wedding until the series finale. So. They've already had a wedding, though. <laughs> yeah, but, but Fitz was dead for it, so they get to do it again. That's, that's, that is, that is an excellent point. That is an excellent yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> um, any final thoughts on Aids the Shield? No, I'm just, I'm very excited for season seven and where it's going to go. I'm very excited. Okay. Uh, talk to me about uh, these Netflix game shows and reality competitions. Because, I mean, obviously I'm familiar with Nailed It and a couple of the other ones. But Blown Away is about glass blowing. I watched most of the premiere of that. So I have, I have some brief thoughts on that. But what is Awake, the million dollar game? And what is Sugar Rush? Is that just like a baking thing? Yeah, so I'm going to save Awake for the end. I think. Okay. Um, but I, because, gosh, I can't wait. Um, so Sugar Rush is indeed a baking show, um, competition show in which there are three rounds. You get to make a cupcake, you have to make a confection, and then you make a cake, a big, like, showstopper-esque cake. Mm -hmm. Um, the twist, and hence the, the pun, is that you have three hours to complete the first two rounds. Mm-hmm. Of doing the cupcake and the confection, but any time that you have left over banks to the next round. So ah. ah, so that's that's the big twist is that if you finish that cupcake round real fast, you have more time to do the confection. And if you finish the confection round real quick, that whatever time is left over goes into the cake round. So you can have four hours to do the cake round if you plan and manage your time wise enough. Or you can have, they just give everyone three hours mm-hmm. um, automatically to do the cake round. Uh, but then you can bank anything else into that. Um, so generally the show is fine, I think. Um, the judges are really good. It's the guy who has another baking competition uh, dessert show um, on Netflix. Uh, the woman who started Sprinkles and the Cupcake ATMs. Um, she's really, really good in general, I think, and I really like her on this show. And then just a rotating guest judge, um, that they have on, um, and it's just, it's very standard overall. There's sort of a theme that runs through each episode. So like the time crunch is sort of the thing that differentiates it to a certain degree of like banking and like trying to finish everything. Um, what's really interesting, at least about this show is how they retool themselves between seasons, um, in terms of, 
structuring things because one of the things that in season one what happens is that once you finish the confection round you just stop and you you just have to clean your station basically and wait for everyone else to finish before you start the cake round um and people get eliminated each round um and they just did away with that in season two of like okay well here's what you're gonna do for round two just get started as soon as you finish round one and we'll eliminate someone as soon as we everyone's done. So mm-hmm. you can be making something and then you're out uh, and just be like, oh, it is no. Harsh. It makes it's for harsh. good TV, but it's hard. It does. And they do that after the end season two, they recalibrate so that after you finish the confection round, you just dive into the cake round. Um, which is better than having to wait. And the other thing that they do is like in season one, they make people wait for however what the time difference is between the final two teams as opposed to just you have this amount of time uh which is weird um and makes for a really boring tv like they figured out a way to recalibrate the time crunch issue between seasons so the shift between what happens in season one and what happens in season two on like just an editing level um makes a big difference in how you can enjoy the show i think um, so if you're looking for like a time waster about six to eight episodes and they're each an hour long, uh, Sugar Rush is not bad, I think, um, just because of the general conceit. Um, Blown Away, like you said, is about glass blowing. Um, this is kind of an interesting sort of um, reality competition show in part because unlike a lot of other reality competition shows, it's something that is based purely on aesthetics as opposed to taste, um, which is what a lot of competition shows are. And we as an audience have to, as you and I have discussed, have to rely on what judges are telling us how something tastes to sort of like evaluate how this is going to go or how it looks to kind of evaluate how it's going to go. Whereas this is just how it looks. And I think that there's something really exciting about that from an audience perspective of we can look at something and go, no, that's really cool. Um, is it though? Is it? And like evaluating that. And I think glass art is a really good way of sort of exploring that because it's also dramatic in terms of being able to watch the creation of that as opposed to watching someone like do really rapid paintings, just going to get kind of boring. But here you've get the drama of glass breaking of people having to put things in really hot ovens and really cold refrigerator type units and different sort of glass blown techniques all look really good on screen. And I think that's what makes a big difference is that this is a really good peek into something that, especially up in the Pacific Northwest where there's a lot of glass blowing stuff here um, because of uh, Chihuly, um, down to like, I live in Tacoma and like there's the glass blowing museum here in Tacoma. Um, that this is just something that's sort of like really growing, I think, in at least awareness to a certain degree. And so I really appreciate that, even if the season sometimes feels a little disjointed. I don't particularly like the host for Blown Away. Um, He's a good science boy on his YouTube channel, but he seems ill-equipped for this. Um, Yeah, I was not impressed in the first episode. I mean, like, nothing personal on him. Like, it's a very specific subset of traits that make a particularly memorable host and so far he doesn't have them and he does not have them which is very different from watching sure rush where i think the guy who's a professional basically like game show host at this point Mm -hmm. is very very good on sugar rush um but yeah the guy who hosts blown away is not great um he gets a little bit better but mostly it's just like 
you are out of your element here. Um, but again, the fact that it comes down to aesthetics and that we all have sort of a sense of aesthetics and can kind of grasp what's going on without necessarily having the judges guide us, I think makes the show a little more interesting and a little more interactive here. Um, how did you feel about watching that first episode? Well, like you said, it's very visually striking and each phase, each like step in the process. I mean, you start with a fire, right? So you're starting yes. with a fire and then a molten blob of sand and things. So like, it's just immediately... Like, you can see the heat, you can see, like, there's immediate stakes to, if you mess up, you'll burn the crap out of your hands, right? Like, like it's immediately a very serious, like, you need professionals to be doing this kind of a thing. Um, yes. I have a, compared to other mediums, I have a little bit more of a connection to glass, um, because my... My dad has a, like, a former colleague and friend who retired from chemistry and became a glassblower, who apparently used to make all his beakers and stuff. Um, oh, cool. But, but, so, but he has um, made these gorgeous blown glass cake toppers for my okay. eldest brother and my sister for their weddings that are just, like stunning and like like there were two he made two little tiny palms on top of like a heart with like and it's like in the names written in like it's just like it's gorgeous gorgeous work so i have had an appreciation for the craft and skill of glass blowing for a long time um and so it's just neat to work like I, every now and again i'll like reference it with my students I'm trying to talk about like the when you're like they're pulling and it needs to be the consistent speed yes. and pressure and any slight variation in that will cause a weakness. I talk about my students with that, um, with our bows and the string for violin and they never know what I'm talking about. And now I can say, go watch Blown Away on Netflix and then you'll know what I mean. Because <laughs> uh, it's the same thing with the sound when you're using a, you know, playing a bowed instrument. Um, but, uh, so, so I, I was excited to see that there was a, a blown glass, uh, competition show because like you said it's insty stakes of like it's like if you were to list things that can break can we make a yes. reality competition show around that thing so you can drop baked goods right <laughs> you can break glass um like just shatterable things like i feel like it could be a um it's like an it's just like an instant in for stakes for a competition show yes. and the fact that you know, like in this premiere, like most of the different, like there's no sense from the competitors that like, oh, they messed up and that's why their glass broke. They're also like, yeah, no, sometimes that happens. Even if you're really careful and you're really good, it's just like glass is unpredictable and it's really easy for that to happen. Um, it, it, there was a sense of camaraderie and, but still fierce competition amongst the competitors. And that is the kind of thing that I'm looking for usually in my competition shows. So I, and I haven't gotten, I've just a few minutes left, but what I've seen so far in watching just that first episode is some really interesting and really beautiful designs. Um, and some less interesting than others and some just like eye rollingly pretentiously conceptual but like some really nice stuff and it was a good range and, so, and a good kind of range of ages and experiences and backgrounds as well so um yeah I, I i enjoyed what i was seeing yeah and i think that generally it's uh interesting also because in no small part because especially through deborah um who's one of the uh competitors with the most experience um you get a real sense of like this is someone who has a philosophy of art and a politics of art and explains those things 
through their um whatchamacallit through their through their talking head segments but also through their art um i don't necessarily agree with a lot of how deborah positions her art because it's really grounded in a lot of second wave feminism or that's how it gets edited um and it's frustrating sometimes to watch that um but there's still like a perspective and approach that a lot of these people have in terms of what they think about their art, which isn't again, something that you necessarily get in reality cooking combat shows, even like top chef where you have people who are within trends of food production and cooking, but not necessarily a larger stake in what the culinary experience or field is necessarily sometimes. Um, that's it's different here which i think is also really really exciting that you have people who are aware of that and talk about that so that's really good as well i think um so it's something worth checking out i think um not worth checking out unless you're just really super curious um is awake the million dollar game show now kate um back in june when i couldn't sleep um i went downstairs and uh popped on netflix and i was going to watch cheers and fall asleep because that's what i do um but the algorithm the mighty netflix algorithm was just like (laughs) oh it's midnight where you are one o'clock maybe you want to try this game show and i went yeah okay so here's the premise of awake um seven people are held in a room for 24 hours not being allowed to sleep um, during this 24-hour period, they spend it entirely counting quarters. The amount of quarters that they that they count, they put into, like, a big bin, and that is the amount of cash that they can potentially win. Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, is after the end of the 24 hours, they tell the producers how much they think they counted. <laughs> <laughs> And then they have to go play games, uh, like various like physical challenges that test like motor skills and that kind of a thing, after not having been allowed to sleep for 24 hours. So, as soon as they get on stage, they eliminate two people. <laughs> they eliminate the person who counted the least amount of quarters, they go. And then they eliminate the person whose count was the most off. Um, so one guy clearly just wanted to go home and go to bed because his count was off by like 34 grand. Um, what? yeah, no, he just clearly just, it was just like, you just wanted to go home. Um, but he just wanted to go home. So then the remaining five people go through three rounds of either reaction time. All right. When this thing lights up, you need to smack the egg that's on your face. Or balance this egg on a plate. Or throw quarters across like a glass table to knock other quarters into a basket. Various things like that. That because you haven't had 24 hours of sleep, your reaction times are dulled. Uh, your depth perception's dulled. All this thing that happens when you haven't slept really for 24 hours. All those weird things that your body starts to go through. They then have to play stupid Double Dare-esque challenges <laughs> um, to do that. And then what ends up happening is that then they have to make judgment calls Um, because in a twist of things, it's like, all right, everyone come back after you're doing this. Um, We're going to let the person who did the best sail through the next round. But then the person who did the worst gets eliminated. But 
we're going to offer you $2,500 in escalating amounts of 5000 and then $7,500. Um, you can leave with money if you just vote yourself out. If you think you did the worst, then this is the time to like leave and get money. Because if you did the worst and you don't out yourself... You don't get anything. You don't get anything. So all of this happens. And so it becomes judgment call issues of like, what did I do? How well do I think I did compared to everyone else? And sometimes you get a little bit of information. There was a second difference between each of you in this other competition. Or there were only maybe five quarters difference between the top two of you that did not win. And this kind of a thing of like messing with your judgment call type of stuff. And so now it becomes like a mental game of like, oh... Well, how do I think I did? But everyone else says that they did really well, but I have to bluff too, but also all this sort of stuff. But again, you've been awake for 24 hours. Well, plus, because all that filming for these individual rounds would take a long time. Right. And that's the other thing is like, you see sort of a real time clock of like, whenever they go to this buyout stage of like, oh, it's like 10 minutes to do this whole game. Um now, the failings of the show become their depiction of the various physical challenges tend to be really boring. Um, lots of split screen type stuff. And because the challenges aren't necessarily the most visually captivating, a lot of them feel like they're refugees from minute to win it. If you remember that Guy Fieri show that was on NBC, um, it's just like really kind of simple challenges that are harder because of the fact that they're sleep deprived, but they're not visually interesting or compelling. So they have to do like a lot of split screen editing, a lot of overlapping editing, and it makes everything feel really, really disjointed. Um, the buyout sequences are also really repetitive. And so the game show becomes not super compelling as a result of the way that they shoot it, the way that they edit it and just the overall structure um, so by the time that the last person is there, they bring out everything that everyone counted and you can either, you can go away with everything everyone counted, which is normally in the upper 100 grand cap, up cap based on the episodes I watched, nothing over two grand. Um, but the only way to win that money is to be within $500 of your own count. Oh, to remember what your count was. Yes. So you have to be within $500 of what your count is uh, to win everything that people pooled. Otherwise, you can just take that money. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you can win a million dollars if your count was within, like, I want to say $50 of 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 what your count was. Okay. Um, So... Again, it becomes like a judgment issue type thing. But again, there's like very little tension to a lot of this. Like it's in part because the chat, the contestants are just really tired. And the host, bless him, is a stand-up comedian who's generally okay. But also is like, this is a really good paycheck for me. But also, I'm not super into this <laughs> sometimes, it feels like. So there's just a degree of like, this is a weird game. It's kind of boring. When your contestants are all like trying to muster up game game show contestant enthusiasm for things, but they're just like, I just want to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a really weird show. Um, And the only reason I bring up all of this is the fact that, and like all three of these shows is like game shows and these kinds of things when Netflix is experiencing weird crunches in, especially its scripted development 
is really interesting that they're turning more and developing more competition shows and game shows because the budget for these are very predictable and very stable unless you get that guy on Jeopardy who just busts your annual prize budget and then you don't know what you're going to do. Um, but it's really stable and they're good economically, which is why ABC does like eight of them during the summer. Um, they're really reliable performers, but they're also like, how does this fit into your larger scheme of content of a game show? And how does that fit into your brand and all this sort of stuff? And what is that? And I think that those are just questions to start thinking about as they start investing more heavily in this kind of programming. Um, they don't have like a lot of like game show game shows like Awake that I was kind of like trying to go through their catalog to find other things. Um, but I'm going to be curious to see if they develop more, especially like they acquired some Jeopardy episodes. Um, they have this and just figuring out like if they're going to do more quiz shows or that kind of a thing because those are such stable on economic level. And what that means for their content library. Because here's the thing about Awake, Kate. There's no trailer for it on YouTube. There's no press information anywhere on their website for it. Like, I asked a friend of mine to get a picture of it. Because I'm going to talk about this in my newsletter next week. And there's no press images for you to put on there if you did a review of this show. There's nothing. And it's real interesting because it's like, the algorithm pushed it to me. But Netflix doesn't care, seem to care about it. So it's one of those things of like, what does this mean? How is this working? And it's something to really think about, especially when like you and I devote our third segment, our special segments each week, typically to a Netflix streamer show mm-hmm. and talk about that and think about that. And that's all kind of what I want to leave you and listeners with, because I've talked a lot about <laughs> these, these three shows and we didn't even move on to our last show for the week. But I think that there's just something to start thinking about in terms of as they sh- don't necessarily shift to, but start to develop more of these. And what does that mean? And it just really means that Netflix is a cable channel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But interesting. It's it's worth thinking about, I think. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's well, and like, how long is awake? Please tell me it's a half hour show. All right. So that's the fun thing to think about is like you can tell who decides to go for a million dollars based on the runtime of the episode. Mm. So most episodes run between thirty five and thirty eight minutes, unless they go for the million, and then it's thirty nine to forty two minutes. There are really only two or three episodes that are between 39 and 42 minutes. And those episodes are all interminably long. <laughs> They're, they just, they feel so long. Yeah. Um, and the show in general feels really long. So it's, it's because it's in that weird in-between state. Um, episodes just, again, feel really disjointed. Um, so yeah, there's not a consistent time frame for each episode like there is with Blown Away, which is half hours. Or Sugar Rush, which is 42 to 45 minutes standard hour without commercial type Mm -hmm. stuff. Interesting. Well, I will probably check out at least one episode of both of those. And I feel like... Like the, uh, I really am very interested in Awake, but I feel like I'm going to probably, like, click through it, you know? Well, that's the funny thing. Like, when I turned on Awake that night, when I couldn't sleep, I didn't finish that episode. I watched, like, 20, 15 minutes of it, and I was just like... I'm too tired to understand what's happening right now. And I turned on Nailed It, which I hadn't watched before. My person loves. Uh And I watched two episodes of Nailed It. And was just like, oh, 
I kind of get this show. And then I turned on Cheers and fell asleep. <laughs> there you go. Very nice. Okay, well, our final I'm sorry, show... Emmy-nominated nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Emmy-nominee nailed it. Um, our final episode uh, for Weekend TV is, I believe, still not Emmy-nominated. I could be wrong on that. Um, it is Queen Sugar, and this week the episode is All the Borders. And last week's episode, of course, ended on that massive cliffhanger with the mill having been burned. Um, like right, <laughs> All the hands in the air if you're surprised that it was arson. But um, for me, this episode, I thought was a really solid episode and a lot of really interesting developments. Um, some really striking scenes. The two that come to mind are, of course, Vi at the diner. And Charlie at the end, and just, I, I love how this show, like, will spend a season or two seasons kind of rehabbing Charlie a bit, and then bring up, the you know, the, the, the dead farmers, the dead planters, workers, farm workers, um, to blow up her current relationship. And it's just it's just her past decisions. It's not because somebody else messed up, it doesn't feel contrived, it is... Her decisions catching up with her and uh, a very tangible, concrete connection to, um, I, I mean, I assume it's from Nova's book or somebody who's writing an article around her candidacy. Um, but yeah. I just, the, the the memory on this show and the performances just lead to some really great mom- moments and developments. And so I thought it was another really strong episode. No, it is. And, like, this is something I'd fallen behind on, which, listeners, is why we haven't been discussing it, is because it it airs on Wednesdays, and I sometimes don't make time for it on, like, Thursdays or Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did this week. And, yeah, I absolutely agree in terms of this is a really strong episode. The scene with uh, Vi and um, Landry is just so good. Uh, um, Tina, it's a Tina Lifford, right? The actress who plays yes. uh, Vi is just so damn good. And I mean, just like eating that yogurt and being like, no, I'm calling in my favor, whatever that favor is. And just like the sheer weight of that scene is suffocating. It's really great. Um, And then your point, your mention of the Charlie scene at the end is really, really good. In part because of, again, bringing up something from the past, her bad decisions, which keep coming back to her, whether it's through Nova's book or through her own actions and people writing about her candidacy, like you said, and how all of that keeps recurring uh, since so much of this show is motivated by memory anyway. And a lot Um, of the show has been St. Charlie too, especially recently, recently, especially. And so having all of that come back, but what really struck me was the visual doubling that they do in that final scene of Charlie's position between those two chairs and then those window drapes and everything along those lines in this mansion that she's mansion, this very, very nice house um, that she's in as we pull out from her and see her in that, that is doubled earlier in her confrontation with Francis, where she is isolated in basically the exact same sort of room, that exact same type of money um, type of feeling and how someone from a different class is now coming at her for her own sins in the same way that she came after Francis. Um, and all of that being like visually doubled without being made narratively explicit 
but then done through the visual storytelling is why Queen Sugar is a very, 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 very good show. <laughs> Even in down to the costuming, it's no coincidence that she's yes. in her jeans and campaign shirt in that first scene and then, you know, not later. Right. Yeah. And the the I mean again, this, this is a show that trusts its audience to make those connections and doesn't feel the need to make the subtext text, which I appreciate. I also like when they do make the subtext text, like in Vice yes. Prayer, which was just lovely and wonderful and I kinda needed that in an episode where I'm like, I don't get me wrong, I'm not Team Nova on all this, but I don't like it when 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 T V family fight. <laughs> No, I don't like it either, but everyone should be mad at Nova, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But speaking of Nova, um, let's kind of talk about Nova's book tour a little bit, if you mm, don't go mind. Go for it. Um, and the... I have really not great feelings about Nova's book tour. Um, again, we're dealing with the past very explicitly um, in two very different ways across Nova's book tour. First with her mentor slash first lover implied. Um, and then made explicit. Um, and then with her, the one that got away, basically, sort of, but also married man slash cop. Um, and part of me is frustrated with the, all right, well, we don't get to see Nova with women very often. And then when we do, it's this really toxic sort of relationship, uh, that she kind of easily falls back into, but then realizes how bad it is. But... That's really, it's still frustrating that that is a point of representation to a certain degree. Um, but then we go to the ex-cop, um, and which I appreciate Micah providing a context for as well, or reframing for. Uh, but it's also just really frustrating because, again, we've gone back to another man, basically, and another white man as well. Um, and it's just... It's the show just never seems able to fully commit sometimes, I feel like, to a Nova sort of relationship um, in a way that I feel does service to representation, but also does service to Nova. Um, And that was a little frustrating for me, um, even if I appreciated how it ended with Calvin here um, of that he never really stepped in, that he didn't do anything to... He looked the other way. Um, but how are you feeling about that and the book tour and like this sort of relationship representation, even if a lot of this is grounded, again, in the past, in memory, and how that comes back to us? Here's my, my thing with Calvin and Nova. Uh, I absolutely agree um, with what you're saying. However, uh, Calvin is not Remy, so we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> I feel like that's key. Super fair. <laughs> Super fair. Um, and I like, I mean, we'll see where it's going to go. But I think that those two, those two have such terrific chemistry. They're really good together on screen. Um, and I like the show's acknowledgement of that and their use of Micah to deflate that. Because I think it's so easy to just kind of swoon over them together and, you know, chemistry despair and, you know, the one that got away and all that good stuff. And then Micah goes, yeah, but this is, he looks the other way while people did stuff like what happened to me. And then you immediately are shamed. You're like, oh, my shipper, my inner shipper is blinded, <laughs> but, but, but blinded by, you know, the, by the swo- swooning romance. Um, so yeah, I still, I feel like they have not given a single 
legitimate love interest to to Nova who is not a man. And that's frustrating. Uh, I like that they have not forgotten that she's bi. But, like, the two people that we see her interact with on the the boat tour are that the first woman who she, like, there's clearly some bad blood there. And then, then this mentor who's just instantly horrible. So it would be nice if, if, if they're, you know, depending on what they decide to do with Calvin. I, I, Calvin did feel like a loose end a little bit. So when he came back, that felt right for me. But, um... Um, yeah, we'll see what happens with with him. But if he... Because I could really see them going either way. I could see them, like, closing the door on Calvin because of this stuff. Or, or you know, keep sticking with him for a while and, on the show as, like, her main love interest. And, um, it'll, I mean, I think either way could be interesting. And I trust these writers. So, you know, if they don't go with uh, Calvin as OTP and like concrete love interest for a while, I would love to see her get a, like a real ride or die deserving, great love interest. Who's a woman. Yeah, I would too. And it's, I was just curious about your thoughts on it because it was kind of frustrating me a little bit. Um, so I was just like, uh... yeah, that's something that has been a frustration with me for the show for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but that also, like, provides a decent segue into Darla, Ralph Angel, and I don't remember her name, so I'm just going to say Erica Tazel. <laughs> yeah. I am very worried about Darla. I'm the most worried about Darla now as I've ever been on the show. Yeah, I am too. I'm super duper worried about Darla. Um, and I don't, I don't like being worried about Darla. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like it. It makes me very unhappy. Yeah. Um... Um, so, yeah, I, I'm worried about Darla, and I don't want to be worried about Darla. I'm just going to keep repeating yeah. myself. But I like <laughs> Erica Tazel, and I like the that relationship with her and and R- Ralph. Yeah. Ralph Angel. Yeah, no, it's good. And, um, like, I'm glad that a show has sort of figured out how to use Erica Tazel. Uh-huh. Um, even if they're not necessarily still giving her, I feel like, enough to do. Um, but I mean, at the same time, like the height of a show apart from justified occasionally knowing what to do with her is Legends of Tomorrow allowing her to fight Gorilla Grodd. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's said there's not a lot of competition. They're doing the best that someone's done so far that I've seen at least. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause goodness knows the good fight didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. her. Um, drats. Um, but I do like the that she represents sort of a different sort of approach and a different kind of person within the community, which I think is good. Um, but someone who's dedicated to the community as well. Um, even if that's sometimes not s- depicted in the same way that they play it up with Charlie in particular. Yeah. Um, what about the scene with Prosper? Any thoughts? Um, well, which scene with Prosper? Because, like, I loved him in the campaign office with that other woman. I just went, yeah, yeah. Prosper. Yeah. Get it. Yep. Get it. You invite that lady over for steaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just like, yes. Um, no, I did like that scene with Prosper as well. I thought it was really good to have that. And Prosper as sort of a stand-in patriarch um, provides a sort of way of correcting things for people. And I think that that's a really good thing for Prosper to do. Um, And it's a good use of him as well. 
but also like that that recontextualization of that sink that scene that is a touchstone for Nova and him going ah about that yeah maybe before you printed that see if you had let anyone see your manuscript before it was too late to change yeah. anything we could have talked to you and given you context for this and then you wouldn't have made it seem like your father was a murderer so yeah and like again it just keeps going back to the fact that all of this is deeply deeply irresponsible and unethical from a memoir publishing standpoint and whomever her publisher and editors are should be sued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, the last thing I'll mention is Hollywood is back. Yay. I appreciated him just like, all right, I'll give you your space, but then I'm going to come back. And it's just like, good. Cause yeah. I need you back. And I need that long hug and that mm-hmm. reaffirmation of how important this relationship is to us. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, any final thoughts on queen sugar or if not, what wins your week in TV? Uh, well, um, Samantha B had a really good third segment, uh, talking to young women who carry around voter registration forms mm-hmm. and, um, people who were all primed and ready uh, as young women who can actually vote for the first time. Uh, people who were born in this century now get to vote for the first time and they're all voting for Elizabeth Warren, which is delightful, <laughs> except for that one guy who's voting for Jay Inslee, um, to which I go, oh, sweet baby, Inslee's not even going to be on your ballot. Um, <laughs> but um, so I really enjoyed that segment. Um, Elementary is doing stuff um, as it in its penultimate episode, to which I go, all of this seemed really inevitable. So I'm curious about how they're gonna end this um i'm kind of lukewarm on all of that but we can discuss that next week um so i think for me queen sugar wins my week in tv uh but what about you yeah i'll give it to queen sugar as well um though shout out to younger which finally finally had liza's age get publicly announced um so the cat's out of the bag and the publishing world was shook to its core to which every and that's going to rock the next like the all the dramatic tension for the next several episodes will be you know probably leading up to the season finale will be from that so but at least uh they can stop pretending you know because like when the show started it was like you know sun foster looks amazing for age she could probably pull off 29 depending on where she lived um and to, to now where it's like are they still saying late 20s can't they like have transitioned to, we're in seasons like six now right can't they have transitioned to early 30s why are they still saying late 20s that's a, uh. anyways um so the uh that, that was i'm glad that, that that has made progression so that was of noticed to me this week but yeah no queen sugar queen sugar from these you know as much as i loved moments of each of the other shows it was it was definitely that one now uh a few show notes you can find a post for this episode over at the televerse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's tv you can like our page on facebook and start up a conversation there you can email us at televerse at gmail.com you can uh you can find our m4a chaptered feed and mp3 unchaptered feed up in apple podcasts and we're also up on stitcher we'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place and if you do leave us a rating review let us know so we can say thank you um and of course we are both up on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at Noel RK. Thanks so much for a good week, Kate. Thank you, Noel. And now it's time to head to the DVD shelf slash season spotlight, um, depending on how you think about it, with friend of the show, Daisy Johnston, to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion, currently streaming on Netflix. And that was a lovely conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll be right back after this. Zombie. 
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Calls Like Changes Ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week, it's very exciting because we're back to the DVD shelf. And it's been so long since we've been at the DVD shelf. The main, Well, I guess maybe it's the season spotlight. The point it's is, both. It's both. <laughs> but the point is, we are joined by a fabulous guest. So welcome to the podcast, Daze Johnston. Thank you so much for joining us. So great to be here. Well, we're, we're talking this week about Neon Genesis Evangelion, Evangelion, um, which is a hugely popular and famous anime recently re-released on Netflix. And so, it's a, like I said, it's a hugely popular and famous anime. So I, of course, had not seen it uh, and <laughs> no one wanted to talk about it and said, OK, we're going to need to bring someone in who can actually like talk about this show with me. Hence, days. So why don't we start with you? Obviously, I've, I I have watched it. All listeners don't never you fear. I did watch all of the all of the show, but uh, I'm still not quite sure what actually happened. So I'm hoping that you guys can help me out. So let's start with um, what is your relationship with the show? Did you like did you watch it when it was first on or did you catch up with it later? Um, and what did you think about this new uh, this new like it's like a re-imaging or, or like a new um, they, they, they updated it, right? They didn't change the story or anything, but like it was new visuals or something. So, um, it's a whole new translation and a whole new dub, which is why it's like a season spotlight because it's almost a new show. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also a show that premiered in 95 and 96 in Japan. And then in the early aughts here in the U S uh, for a very brief run on Cartoon Network, um, in the afternoon, no less, uh, before everyone realized, wait, we can't show the back half of the show in after school hours. (laughs) Can't do that. (laughs) <laughs> maybe we should be bad yeah that <laughs> censors that badness badness yeah um but days how about you did you have a connection with this show so the only thing i knew about this show was that robin williams said it in that horror movie he did where he played the photo developer mm-hmm. at one point he hands the kid a toy and goes ah oh, neon genesis evangelion that was my entire relationship with it <laughs> Okay, I feel a little better. I feel a little better. So what did you think? So when Netflix announced that they were going to bring it on, I was like, okay, good. Now I have, you know, a good place to start. And I thought it was, everybody had been talking about it as like the apex 
of anime. So I was like, I need to block out at least three months. It must be this huge thing. But it was just this one little season, just these 25 episodes. I watched one a day and it just changed my entire worldview. I loved it so much. Great. I'm glad to hear it. Um, Noel, why did you want to talk Evangelion? Well, for the reason that Day's alluded to is that this is deeply influential for both. It's really probably one of the most important television shows of both the 1990s and the early aughts. Um, the 1990s for Japan and anime. This is a show that's still consistently referenced um, even today. Um in anime, but it's also a show because of when it aired here in the U.S. or became available in the U.S., which was in the early aughts, that it's also really influential for a number of animators that are now making their own shows here in the U.S. So, Kate, you and I both love uh, Steven Universe, and Steven Universe is littered with references to Evangelion. Um, Just, they're everywhere. It's kind of ridiculous. And so this is one of, like, the touchstone sort of shows for both decades in a lot of ways. Um, But it's also a show that's deeply complicated, um, is very much still just a coming-of-age story, mixed with so much existential dread and just borderline Brechtian fourth wall breaking by the end because they ran out of money. Um, So I think that there's just a lot to unpack in the show. Um especially in the second half, but there's just this, it's really touchstone and it's very important culturally and for medium development. And to what you were sort of talking about, Kate, is that no, they didn't add any new scenes, but the show's creator, Hidekaya Nano, has developed a four-part film series that reimagines the show um, across four different movies or four projected movies. And the first movie is basically the first six episodes. And then he just starts doing new stuff about it. And um, so it's just still this major cultural influence and merchandising influence is the other thing. Because toys, figurines, um, tie-ins, and all this kind of stuff are still consistently sold uh, for Evangelion. So this is a major, major intellectual property. And... Prior to Netflix getting the rights for it, it was basically really difficult to watch legally um, after around 2008-2010. So, That's interesting. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was yeah. a big deal that Netflix paid through the nose, apparently, to get the rights to this. Hmm. Interesting. Well, because they've been trying to develop and expand their anime yeah, really so aggressively. This is, uh, this is a good way to to bring in new you know people who hadn't like committed to the monthly fee. This is a good way to get yeah. them in or to show that you're serious about that. So yeah, um, yeah. okay. So um, listeners, don't throw things at me through your podcasting devices, please. And also, um, I'm I'm very sorry, my lovely guest and co-host. I thought it was fine. And there was parts of it that I liked quite a bit, and there are parts of it that I was like, oh, we're just going to listen to them make sex sounds for 20 seconds yes. for no per- no reason. Oh, no, because apparently he was putting a pill up her vagina. Okay, so that, that there was no other way they could have gotten that to her in some other... 
this is what we're going to do. And how many down skirt shots or up skirts and down sh- blouse shots can we have? And okay, this is this is one of those. Um, and then there are parts, it was interesting when they started to run out of money, because some of the visuals are gorgeous, absolutely stunningly gorgeous. And then at a certain point, they start to run out of money. And some of that was very creative. They handled it with a really smart and creative and interesting, thoughtful way. And some of it was really hampering the storytelling uh, later on. And um, by the end, I just was and I think some of it is also because, unlike days, I did not space it out. I, I had to marathon this. And so by the end, I was just um, kind of over all the whining, <laughs> even though I know that's terrible. Because it's existential dread, and it's really serious. It's dealing with really intense emotions and really powerful, uh, introspective character development, which is great. But also everyone in the show has a mommy and daddy issue, and they're very similar. And for me, it I was wanting more variety in the themes and in, in the characters' approaches. And I didn't didn't know I didn't feel like the I thought some of the storylines were handled really well, and some of them less so. And some of the character development felt very consistent, and some of it really didn't. And so I it was very up and down for me. Um, so I mean I'm looking forward to diving in with it. But yes, listeners, never you fear there are two people who. Will, it will not be sacrilegious <laughs> towards this beloved text of the three of us. So at least, yeah, it's not I'm, It's not just going to be me spouting heathenry. So um, now that I've ripped off that Band-Aid, Daze, you love the show. Tell me about it. I, I just think it might just be the fact that I'm 21, but I loved how it seemed like it perfectly encapsulated the t- teenage experience while still being about the apocalypse, it was a very horny show. Like, you should be upfront with it. Like, it's, it's, there are just lots of that in the show. Um, I watched one episode in the living room TV with my entire family, and it was the worst possible episode to watch. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a laptop show. <laughs> but I just think that that was important to the message of the show that it was about coming of age and growing up and dealing with your parents because they're the the biggest thing in your life that you have to come to terms with around that time yeah i I think that's a really good point um like to um sort of address what kate was saying about um the storylines being really similar and the arcs being really similar uh, the director and writer, Hidekai Nano, was in very, very deep, intense psychotherapy uh, towards the end of the show, where he was seeing uh, a Freudian psychologist, um, like, up to three times a week, um, and was dealing with his own issues, and that was starting to bleed in really heavily um, while towards the end of this production, which is why it's real heavy on the Freudian psychopsychology um, uh, across the show. Um, but I do think that what Days was saying about coming to grips with your parents is really important for the show, um, in part because that transition from childhood through adolescence to something in past your teenagehood is really, it's that it's always that sort of conflict of like wanting to be your own person, but still be recognized as your own person, which is really what the last two episodes are really about. And... I think that the degree to which that gets explored and dealt with through the apocalypse, because it's the end of the world, both figuratively, but also emotionally, when you're like transitioning 
into teenagehood, you're leaving childhood behind and going to this whole new thing that you don't understand that doesn't make any sense. And everyone else is also in this deep survivalist mode almost of, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm feeling these things. And I think that all comes out both literally, but also emotionally and figuratively, even if, yes, some of this is really repetitive. And it is also a really very horny show. And then all that horniness gets really, really bad after it's like, oh, we're going to do fun fan service. And then it becomes, oh, we're going to, this is all going to become very sad. We're reaping what we sowed here. Um, And I think that that's one of the upsides of the show is that there's a balance to that idea of we're going to do this fan service in the first half. And then it's going to steadily become like this, darker issue of uh, people in love with people who don't want to be in love with people killing clones that are daughters and slash their wives uh, <laughs> it's messed just, up is what he's it's saying very, it's messed up it's very messed up and I think that that's really delightful and I'm super glad I didn't make you watch End of Evangelion Kate I'm really glad I did not make you watch End of Evangelion which is the to, which is the hour-long version of what they wanted the finale to be, but they did not have the money for, which is why the last two episodes are exactly what they are. Yeah, we. I, it's interesting for me because the like, I feel like they blow right past the ending where the like shadowy council is planning. Like, yeah, yeah, is planning to forcibly mutate the entire human population into like a gestalt of a shared a single shared consciousness and like we're just supposed to like be cool with that or something i don't know what the show thinks it's saying it feels like masato is like that's super messed up and they're like yeah but it's for the best and end of discussion and then we go and then the last episode is all you know, our, our hero just coming to term. Like, I did that actually happen at the end, or was that just like a, a he's going to let down his walls now? Because it seemed like they want us to think it's a he's going to let his walls down now and be able to accept love. Um, and they wanted a really tidy, happy ending, or they were out of episodes to achieve anything more nuanced than that. Um, when he should have still been dealing with much bigger things, around having just killed a friend to save the world. Um, and it, it's, instead we get this kind of very metaphysical and very intellectual you know, moment of the soul, discussion of the soul. And, and it's still unclear to me whether that ending of that wall was just like inside his head or if we're, that's supposed to be a metaphor and stand in for there is no individuality anymore. Days, what did you think about the ending? I, I really, well, the way that I watch TV is that I will watch everything except the finale for as long as I can possibly stand it. Uh-huh. So I watched the finale last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, because you were, like, watching this pretty regularly, like, as soon as it dropped, which was, like, a month and a half ago. Yeah, but okay. I, I still haven't watched so many finales, so I left it as long as I could. And... The, the number one thing I thought was, oh, somebody read Hegel because it's all about how the individual is only defined by the people around the individual and having to be recognized by the other, which is like Hegel 101. And then from there, I thought, oh, yeah, there was some stuff with a, 
with humanity, but I honestly didn't care. Like, and that might just be a personal preference, but the the whole monster of the week, angel of the week thing just kind of seemed like it got in the way of the real story. But maybe the real story was the angels and I just liked the subplot more. <laughs> no, you're right. It really gets old of the Angel of the Week. I, don't get me wrong. Other people I know love to watch, especially the action animes, for the visuals, for the fight scenes, for the battles, because they are, like, they're very spectacular. But I also felt like, and I wonder if there's going to randomly be an angel when they're on this trip. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there's going to be an angel, and they're going to have a massive battle, um, and they're going to almost die, and then the last second they're not going to die. Um, and be, the reason that it got to be a little uh, repetitive for me was because they kept acting like it was a surprise, and like it was a huge deal, when like almost every single episode there's an angel attack. Yeah, so basically, I'm right there with you. I care way more about what's happening with the characters than I do the larger... I, I Yeah, I think that A-plot is what's happening with the characters. Uh, I just still have questions about the overriding mythos and what exactly happened. Right, so here's where this gets really controversial to a certain degree, is that there are plenty of people who will tell you never to watch the last two episodes of this show. Um, these people are wrong. Um, uh, because that they think that you should watch End of Evangelion, which if the final two episodes of the television series are internal, they are happening within Shinji's mind as instrumentality is occurring. Um, then End of Evangelion is all the external stuff. It's Sele's final endgame. It's what uh, Gendo has been attempting to achieve. And we actually see instrumentality occur. And um, everyone gets reduced to a primordial soup of orange that is just tang, basically. Um, And then there's a lot of other really weird stuff that happens that if you're really curious, please watch End of Evangelion. It's very weird. Um, if you have problems with character consistency, you're going to have huge problems with End of Evangelion because there's just not great stuff that happens in there. Um, but you also see snippets of End of Evangelion in the series. You see a dead Masato. You see a dead Ritsuko floating in what looks like a pool of LCL. Um, all this kind of stuff that's actually in, in, in End of Evangelion. Um, so all of that happens sort of concurrently. So end of Evangelion is the external, and then there's the internal of what Shinji is doing of having to either accept or reject human instrumentality. And that kind of gets to what both of you were saying about, all right, Shinji's been defining himself by how others view him and how he view, uh, views others. But also concurrently, he needs to determine if he's able to view and love himself. Um, And if he wants to value himself as an individual within that space. And so Evangelion is the end of the television series is very much, for me anyway, about him reclaiming individuality and about him deciding that there will be individuals again, as opposed to this gestalt, I think is a really good use uh, here of everyone's in this primordial LCL tang soup 
um, where everyone intermingles, but it also means that no one can get hurt. The hedgehog dilemma gets eliminated um, when you're all just in the same consciousness. There's no way to have the kind of withdrawal and fear of being hurt that Shinji grapples with across the series. Um, And then that gets visualized at the end of the end of Evangelion film in how Shinji decides that the earth is going to have individuals again. Um, And I won't spoil how that works, but um, if you've watched Steven Universe, you've actually already seen the closing scenes of um, the end of Evangelion, believe it or not. Um, So that's kind of how it works is for me. Anyway, the ending is very much about Shinji reclaiming individuality and acknowledging and loving himself and then how that gets translated into the larger mythos gets elaborated upon in the closing film. Okay. Did so, all of that make sense? Well, except that I think a bunch of it is bullshit. <laughs> but I, Sure, sure, sure. So I have trouble. I can't buy into the idea of we'll just reduce everyone to goo and if we're all, they're all part of this collective thing then they can't hurt each other. If you if you make every put everyone into one consciousness, that's the last thing I think would happen. So that's the trouble. I can't buy into that philosophy of like I don't know about necessarily where the show stands, but where the characters you know are like then nobody can be hurt anymore because they don't have to worry about the like, well I don't think that's what would happen. Um but of course I'm like Though that this uh, hypothetical primordial soup of or tang of an LCL of all humanity in one consciousness would definitely be the you know like I mean come on but but I do really like um, what you're saying I'm really interested in what you're saying about Shinji and I think that like on that level because I was connected to him very much throughout this this story throughout the whole series I was like his moment of like a much Oh, that's another way to put it. if you RuPaul's uh you know if you can't love yourself how are you gonna love anybody else you know yes um, moment <laughs> just a very different way of saying that same lesson um I, I thought that was lovely and very well shown and and it was an interesting you know my problem was when you take that out to like zoom out to the larger thing that's where it falls apart for me but if I stay focused in on Shinji then uh overall I'm really connected with the journey. And part one of these issues I have when I go back and discover, um, and usually, Noel, you're revisiting uh, yeah. these seminal anime pieces and like and and series that have inspired so many, is that it's easy for them to feel repetitive because or derivative when what it actually is is that a bunch of other shows were inspired by this, you know? Yes. So I feel like I've seen many, many animes uh, of, of at least proportionally to the very few that I've seen, um, would that have that follow this kind of model, and and that I'm guessing were inspired by by Evangelion, um, where you know it, you have this character who's the lone outsider who's placed with a with usually um, a young woman or a young but inappropriately older for them woman who's their caretaker but not related to them so they can have sexy fantasies about them and it's okay and then they get into adventures and the parents aren't around or are very absent for various reasons so that they can get into adventures and go off and fight aliens and stuff um so like there were many beats in this that were very very familiar and i just kept having to remind myself yes because you're watching the thing that inspired all the other things it's very tropey but it's the trope originator because it's where everything started and 
this is like my third anime I've ever watched, but it just it felt very, very similar and it hit all the emotional beats that I wanted. Well, let's start with that. I mean, for me, obviously, the character I was like I've been saying that I was connected to most was Shinji, which is he's the main character. That seems like a good one to connect to. Um, but I also really connected with a couple of the other ones. Who was your through line, and who were you most connected to when you're when you were watching this one? I I love Shinji, but I, I also loved Ray, and Asuka was just unapologetic, and I appreciated that. I really liked her the backstory that we get with her mom just purely for how fucked up it is and really traumatic. And it's like, I kind of, I wanted, I would have loved for them to have had the, the episodes and budget to really dive in to, to the lingering effects of some of these things because the stuff with the doll, it was very creepy and very traumatic and also really explained some elements of why she was the way she was. They pulled zero punches. I also really like Ray as well, um, in terms of following a through line, in part because Ray is dealing with that existential crisis um, over and over again, in a way, of terms of, oh, right, I'm the other one. I must be the new one. Um, and having to like keep living that, plus also, what is her concept of identity versus the fact that she's a clone of Yui, um, uh, Gendo's wife slash Shinji's mom? And how all that works in her own head and doesn't work. And so I think that that's a really good through line. Um, and just kind of terms of personal, I love Ritsuko, uh, the scientist. Um, she's just so deeply, deeply screwed up on just so many levels. Um, and she gets like the least amount of um, sort of development of anyone, uh, which is frustrating. Um, but she's just... She's very much a pawn in all of this, despite ha- wanting to exert some degree of agency. She just can't find a way to do that, um, like Masato is able to, to a certain extent. And that ends up being her undoing. Um, she does the one thing that she can do, which is destroy all the other Ray clones slash the dummy system. Um, and so I, there's just there's a number of characters I really care about, but this is also a show that... Every time I revisit it, um, I find like a different kind of character to latch onto depending on where I am in my life. Because um, I rem- I kept trying to remember like where I was and who where I was when I first watched this, and it had to be like in the mid aughts uh, when I got the maybe the DVDs through Netflix. I think because um, Toonami wasn't airing. I think Toonami only aired it once or twice, and I missed it. Um, but it was just one of those things where it was just like, oh, all of this is really clicking for me. All of this stuff with Shinji is really clicking with me. And now, like, going on and getting older, I'm just like, man, if I was surviving the apocalypse and really hung up on my partner, I'd probably try to clone her, too, and treat her like a daughter. And then it's like, no, that's a terrible idea, Noel. Don't relate to Gendo. Don't relate to Gendo. That's a that's bad, like the bad one wrong Noel. answer. <laughs> yes, no, you know. It's, it's the it's the correct no it's the very much the wrong answer no i was just like then i realized no i'd be fihutsuki i'd be the old guy at the other guy's arm going like yeah we shouldn't be doing this but i'll do anything for that one last chance to be with that woman that i was secretly in love with who was my student so messed up yikes. yeah that, yikes indeed yeah. I, I i really enjoyed <laughs> versions of of misato and because yeah. because there are like at least three different characters there that they're 
kind of pretending is the same character. And you could, like, spin that as saying, like, it's that character through the lens of how different people view her. And when we're getting, like, Shinji's impression of who she is versus her own internal monologue, you know. Um, But I was really enjoying certain elements of 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 her narrative and what she was dealing with. The, um, yeah, the, the... the stuff with Kaji, I think some of it is interesting and meaningful, and some of it just kind of towards the end of the run, when every single character has roughly the same abandonment issues from their parents um, and their fathers, then that got a little less interesting for me. But um, but in general, I, I, I did enjoy her as well. Once they got past the uptight boy staying with the slobby girl... Um, part of like the more tropey start of it, I got a lot more interested in, in who she was. It's really funny because I think Masato is one of like those forerunners of a, especially like within Western media, of a woman who, or is inspired in part by the woman who's actually fairly good at her job, but her actual like social life outside of her job is just a mess. Um, to the fact where, like, you come into her apartment and it's just filled with trash and garbage everywhere. And it takes Shinji, basically being Shinji, to get her life into a degree of order, but also to make sure that there's actually food in the refrigerator and not endless amounts of beer. Um, because goodness knows the warm weather penguin is not going to do anything to help. (laughs) Pen Pen. Pen Pen, secret hero of the whole show. I really like Masato as well, and she's sort of like the stealth um, co-protagonist of the show since she gets like the most development. Um, but she's also like the one who's in that state of arrested development um, as well. So I think that, again, there's just a lot of, I think, Kate, your point is spot on. There's just a lot of repetitiveness. But there's just this way of like wanting to drive home that kind of... Freudian approach of if this explains one person it explains all people which is a really common sort of um, way of understanding a lot of what Freud talks about um, and how Freud approached his own work Um, that if it explains one person explains everyone which I think is partly the reason why there's this heavy degree of repetition to it but also repetition is built into psychoanalysis of you're constantly reliving trauma Mm -hmm. and that's the way you deal with it. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, if they're going to spend that much time on people, on dad, daddy issues and mommy issues, I would like the fathers and the mothers to have been characters. And yeah. they, they aren't, you know? So the what old- are you talking about? Yui is definitely a character. She's there in the entire run of the show. She's just blue haired and a teenager. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, well, before we run out of time, uh, and so that the Evangelion fans don't like send me angry tweets, uh, let's talk about some of our favorite like moments or visuals or episodes and ones we particularly connected with. Like for me, the part where I stopped, like multitasking and what was I think I was folding laundry and I just had to like stare at it was the um, angel fight in the lava was just so gorgeous and tense and like the I felt the especially I was watching the dub the normally I go for sub but I had to do dub for this um, the vocal performances I thought were really uh, impacting especially the actor doing Asuka uh, so that was one of the ones that really stood out to me did you guys have moments that you really connected with uh, on a the uh, like a doubling level or a visual level? Well, I know that there had been, because this is my first experience with the with the dub, I know that there had been some complaints with some of the translation and that 
towards the end when Koru is there and he's saying it it means I like you was originally it means I love you and people are worried that it might seem a bit like it lessened that affection but if you watch that scene there is hardly any subtext to the way Shinji is feeling in that moment and I love that part I was so worried that it was going to get all weird but it was just so much pure like infatuation not even on a sexual level, just like a you are the coolest person and you think I'm cool kind of mm-hmm. moment. And I just, I, I watched that scene maybe three times. Also, the sound design was just brilliant. How every time there was an exterior shot, you could hear the cicadas in the background and the nature and, ugh, it was immersive. Yeah, um, as someone who's watched this show many many, many times and written a graduate paper about it. Um, <laughs> um, I have a number of like favorite things, but like um, one of my favorite episodes is Dance Like You Want to Win, which is the original translation for it. Um, I think the new one is Mind Matching Moment, which is the one where Asuka and Shinji have to coordinate their dance moves to beat one of the angels. Um, I just, that episode's just really ridiculous and really silly, and I really enjoy it. Um... I do really enjoy, like, the angel designs, especially as they became more abstract, the more dire things got. Um, But also appreciated that they became humanoid again when things got really, really bad. Um, Like, Karu showing up, or that one that when uh, Unit 01 goes totally berserk and starts eating it. Um, It's also deeply disturbing. Um, But I think that, like... For me, especially with the new Netflix dub and translation, uh, which is meh, I think overall because it's a very faithful translation and demonstrates the limits of being overly faithful to a text um, when you're translating it. Um, Since translation for me is always more art than science, and this is a more science than art sort of translation. But um, Casey Mangello, who voices Shinji, is terrific. Um, and it gives a really sort of definitive performance to Shinji. Um, Mangillo, for those who don't know, um, identifies as a non-binary trans woman and is just the layers that they provide Shinji, I think is really, really great um, on multiple levels. And uh, the best sort of, uh, not critique, but reading of that performance uh, you can find over at vice um i forget who did it um but it was a trans woman who wrote the article about how mangillo's performance very much hails um trans women in particular and really provides a additional layer of basically queer subtext but borderline actually being text at this point because of the performance and I really appreciated that, but it's also like the best part of the new dub for me is Mangello's performance. It's just really, really good. There's a lot of wryness to it, but there's also just a lot of emotional depth to it that I don't think you necessarily find um, sometimes in Spike Spencer's performance, who did the original ADV dub, and also um, in the dub of, oh, what's her name? I need her name. Uh, Megumi Ogata, who voices Shinji in the Japanese dub. Um, and for both of you, um, it is very common for women in Japanese dubs to voice uh, preteen boys. It just happens a lot. Um, and they carried over that. So that Vice article kind of delves into that as well. But Mangello's performance is just by far and away my favorite part about 
this uh, new Netflix iteration. It's really, really good, and it's iconic sort of performance level for an iconic character. Yeah, the because uh, I, I had the dub and the sub on, and mm-hmm. so it was. There were times where I was like, "Huh, that's a different take." I do not agree. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that happens a lot uh, with subs and dubs. Is that the sub translation will be different from the dub translation? That just that happens a lot. That is a common thing. Yeah. So that was it was just an interesting viewing experience. Yeah. I, I always bet. prefer to have both because then you can compare and contrast and kind of come to your own composite meaning of what that originally meant, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Well, do we have any final thoughts on Neon Genesis Evangelion? Good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sum it up any better. Okay. Noel? Yeah. No, I mean, this is iconic and important, like, to what you all were talking about with um, being trope originator. There were other sort of deconstructions of the mecha genre to a certain degree that existed before Evangelion, but Evangelion solidified and codified all of this, um, and it's still being felt today, which is, again, why, like, my earlier point, this is a deeply influential and important television series, and while as much as I don't like that it's on Netflix for various reasons, I'm also really glad it's on Netflix because people can finally watch it again. Yeah. Well, and I'm grateful to now have this cultural touch point to be able to connect uh, to, you know, some of these really famous characters and, and themes and be able to be like, that's a reference, and I get it, because Noel made me get it. Uh, so, <laughs> so thank you, and, Noel. And now you can go back and watch Steven Universe and go, oh my god, this is why they're so obsessed with hands. <laughs> sure, I'll probably just be singing the songs, you know me. Yeah. But yes, that too, that too. Hands everywhere. Uh, thank you, Noel. Thank you, Dave, for coming on the podcast. Uh, is there, you know, Where can our listeners find you online? Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, my Twitter, where I live tweet tweeted Ava extensively, is mm-hmm. at the good old days with a D A I S, and that's where you can usually find me most hours of the day. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, and hopefully you'll come back again sometime. We could talk some more anime. I'd love to. Yeah, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. <laughs>